All right, welcome to this episode of Breaching Extinction. I am here with a couple amazing guests this week. I have Michael Peterson and Stephen Holly, the director and writer of Breach, uh, Damn to Extinction, respectively. Almost made a little mess up there. Um, and I have a special guest too. My mom's here. She's sitting in today. Um, so we're just going to get right down to it. Um, fun fact before we get started, uh, my mom and I are actually in the documentary itself. Oh, you're kidding. We, were, we were at the rally for <laughs> 75 at Olympia. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. That was a great um, part to the film. Wasn't yeah, it? That was I, I thought it was really, really moving and very cool. Yeah, she she was holding surprise and I was holding on. Oh my goodness, you guys were oh. holding the way. <laughs> yep. Did you actually see yourself in the film? Uh, yep. Yeah. yep. Oh, <laughs> Okay, now I'm going to look for you next time. That's great. (laughs) Yeah, that was a very emotional uh, rally. That was a pretty incredible thing they did. Yeah, I was. It was pretty moving. We were we were really we were really really excited to be there. So let me turn the tables on you for just a second. How did you guys get involved in the fight to save the southern residents? Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know, because if I'm honest, yeah. orcas aren't my favorite animal, but they kind of keep showing up. Um, I actually saw Tilikum when he was in the aquarium in uh, Victoria okay. in like 88 or 89. Um, so kind of watching his story became interesting. Yeah. Um, and I had a picture that my mom had given me that... Unfortunately, I somewhere lost, but it was an orca under the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. And I actually live in Gig Harbor, so that's, you know, we don't see orcas down there much anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's just kind of been growing interest. And I think, in a way, orcas are kind of, kind of like keystone species. If the orcas aren't healthy, the whole ecosystem's not healthy. And orcas are an easy way to connect with people because they're iconic, they're majestic, they're so much like we are. So, yeah. Well said. Those things. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I think for me, and I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but when I was five, four, four years old, we went to go oh, see yes, Keiko. We, we went and saw Keiko at the Oregon Coast Aquarium. Um, before he went off to Iceland, mm. and uh, and that just kind of was always a point of interest for me. And then I think the last four or five years, it's just been a growing interest, getting involved. They they really do seem to because they're so charismatic. They do seem to draw that certain kind of attention. And like Mom said, they're just so much like us. It's it's easy to empathize with them. So. Um, I did want to mention, too, before we get started in the questions, um, Michael and Steve are presenting a TED Talk in Big Sky, uh, and it's a really, really big thing. We were at the Orcs Island Seaview Theater last night, and they kind of used us as guinea pigs for their TED Talk, and it was really, really well done, actually. Thank you. And uh, so if you guys have any extra spare cash, uh, they, they they need some funds for that, so definitely... Uh, check out damntoextinction.com and, and see what you can do. Um, so, yeah, we'll get down to the questions then. 
Uh, this one is actually for Steve specifically. Uh, you wrote Recovering a Lost River, which yes, inspired the movie Damned to Extinction. Uh, and it was sort of a directive uh, to remove the four lower Snake River dams. Um, but you only really talked about the killer whales in about a chapter or so. There wasn't a whole, it wasn't that focus. What inspired you to kind of broaden that focus to, to or I guess narrow the focus really? Um, so to make a movie out of that yeah. chapter in the book. Yeah. So the, the name of that chapter is Feed Willie. So mm-hmm. you had gone, were inspired by seeing Keiko at the Oregon Aquarium. And uh, at the time that I wrote the book, 10 years ago, uh, Feed Willie was still a you know cultural touchstone, or, or that whale was still sort of a cultural touchstone. I think there are this is how long this fight has been going on. There's mm-hmm. a, probably a whole generation of environmental activists that have no idea who Keiko was. So, but we do, right? People yep. over 40 do, people over 35 do. And um, I think the main thing that inspired us to make a film out of uh, that chapter is that I took Michael fishing and asked him if he wanted <laughs> to make a movie out of, out of a chapter in my book, and he foolishly agreed. Yeah. <laughs> Fateful day on the yeah. River. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I actually went to the premiere of Damn to Extinction in Seattle uh, with Ellie's dad. And you talked a little bit about someone who had read the book and encouraged you to explore that idea a little bit. That was uh, Sharon Grace. And there are two sort of um, parental figures behind this film, if I can use that term. One would be Ken Balcom, and the other would be Sharon Grace. She had actually called me um, just to catch up and... She had made it clear that she said, I know you've talked about doing something more for these whales, and if you're ever going to do anything, now's the time, because things have gotten fairly dire. This was four or five years ago now, and unfortunately they haven't improved much since. So Michael and I have talked about this. We're in this bizarre situation where... For filmmakers, um, things for you know attention that's being paid to this issue right now is been good for for us for filmmakers. What's happening to the whales, however, is horrific, and I think that puts a lot of the onus on us as artists and filmmakers to to try to make a difference. You know, so it's not just. We're glad that people are, you know, we're packing theaters and people are seeing the film, but I, I, particularly the morning after these events, I'm like, okay, what, how, what kind of impact did we really have? Are, are people not just being inspired, but moved to, to take action? Very cool. Thank you. Um, let's see. In both the book and the documentary, there is a lot of discussion about how salmon runs were ultimately really only changed after the American settlement of the West. Um, You kind of talk about in the book, it's briefly mentioned in the movie, um, and yet humans have fished these rivers for years. Um, Do you think there is a real reason for the attitude difference between the coastal native tribes and the settlers who displaced them in regards to the, the consumption of those natural resources? Well, sure there is. 
you know, the a lot of people that have sort of thrown their hands up and said there's just too many, there's too much bureaucracy, we can't possibly manage salmon through all these jurisdictions from the Pacific Coast all the way inland, you know, up to the Continental Divide in Idaho. But in fact, if you look at all the tribal jurisdictions that those salmon swam through for thousands of years, they did a much better job of managing that resource than we have so far. Um, technology plays obviously a huge part in this. We, you know, did a lot of things basically because we developed the technology to do it. I think 10,000 years from now when they look back, when if humans are still around and they look back on this era, it'll be like, we certainly built a lot of things simply because we could, right? Um, I, and I think that's been really, for the European settlers, the main difference. We, we haven't really, there hasn't been a lot of wisdom or caution attached to the technologies that we've developed, and we all use them. But so far, in the last hundred years particularly, we haven't taken the time to say, well, maybe we should put the brakes on this because it's really uh, causing a lot of, you know, harm. Yeah. And, and if you look at climate change, I'm reading this book right now by Bill McKibben called Falter. You heard of it? I, I've heard of Bill McKibben. I haven't heard of that Okay. Book. The premise of the book is that we may be looking at kind of the end of the human experiment because we haven't been able to rein in our politics and the way that we govern ourselves to match, for instance, the harm that's done when we take oil out of the ground, the harm that's done when we block rivers with giant concrete structures, and it's sort of a disturbing premise, but, you know, it is definitely sort of final exam time for the human race these days. And I think that's what we're seeing with the southern residents is, are we really going to let these magnificent creatures go? Gotcha. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, another one specifically for you. You, in the book, juxtaposed the salmon runs of the lower west coast, whose salmon runs were dammed with a great vigor, um, to the salmon runs of Alaska, which still remain free-flowing, uh, due in part to the very staunch uh, refusal of the Alaskans to allow their salmon runs to be um, affected in that way, to see those consequences. Um, why, didn't we see, why do you think we didn't see such protectiveness down in the lower 48? Well, I mean... The United States has really been fairly barbaric about managing its rivers and its salmon runs. Canada made a very similar decision in the 1930s to uh, not dam the rivers. Um, they took a look at a suite of proposed dams, and Roderick Haig Brown, you know, the renowned biologist and, and fishing writer was among that core group of biologists that said, we don't recommend that you do this. And so subsequently, until ocean conditions really started to deteriorate here maybe a decade ago, Canada had a really healthy uh, salmon run, the Fraser River up north along the Pacific coast. 
uh, to the Skeena was a sort of uh, hot spot. Um, there were healthy runs of salmon. You know, unfortunately, Canadians did ad- adapt sort of hatchery technology, and they're sort of and and worse than that, some of the open sea pen net fish farming, and that's. So they've unfortunately kind of caught up with us in some making some foolish management decisions. But the reason I put Alaska, the sort of history of Alaska fisheries management in the book is there, that's, I think that offers kind of a way forward. It's possible for us to have sustainably harvest, harvested levels of um, salmon runs. You know, we have the precedent of Native Americans who did it for thousands of years. We have the precedent of the Alaskans who are doing their best to manage their fisheries sustainably. It's possible to do it. We shouldn't just throw our arms up and say, well, it's too late. Very cool. Thank you so much. Um, What was the, in terms of making the documentary and seeing all the various factors in in the politics of getting these dams down. What was most frustrating to you? From a po- politics standpoint? Or uh, any, any kind of standpoint, just, you know, even process. <clears throat> well, you know, one of the biggest issues we have is <clears throat> it's a big topic. And how do you distill down your message into 50 minutes, you know, in under an hour was what we thought would be about the right length for the film. So um, these orcas face a lot of other challenges. You know, there's pollutants, there's vessel noise, there's, you know, um, but lack of prey, lack of food is arguably the biggest problem that they have. And so what is the best way that we could get the most food back for these whales? And so we kind of had to run that fine line of focusing the film on what we think would be the very best solution. And um, restoring the, the, the salmon runs to the Columbia River, which was once the largest producer of Chinook salmon in the world, that would be the best and quickest way to restore the food for these animals. So finding the story and finding the people that could tell that direct story um, was probably the biggest challenge. And then, you know, came into the came into the film with an idea of what we were trying to do, but then being open to where it took us was really important. Um, for example, you know, um, Carrie Nykwalker Schuster, the Palouse tribal elder who lost their family um, home site, yeah. became a very interesting and um, heart-wrenching part of the film that I wasn't, didn't think we were going to do at the beginning, but then that just became such an important factor. Also, when <clears throat> J-35 lost their calf and, and pushed it around for 17 days, again, that was a, something that happened while we were making the film. So, um, But again, I think having a focus on what we were trying to do and, and um, have it, people be able to come away with, this is what is the most important thing for these whales is um, was probably the biggest challenge. Gotcha. Agreed. Would you, what What would you say would be the most frustrating part then of the political process that you've seen? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> frustrating part. That's that's. Uh, um, well, <clears throat> it's a pretty big question. It's a big question, <laughs> and um, there's a 
sequence in the film where we've got four um, politicians, uh, Congress people talking, um, and they are so entrenched in their belief and in their um, loyalty to their to certain constituents um, to see any lack of um, I, I don't know I, even the willingness to listen to the other side has been very frustrating um, I grew up in eastern Washington um, I grew up on those dams I grew up fishing and water skiing and, and I grew up in a very conservative town and the thought of taking those dams um, was never even Considered because they're they're part of the culture. People there are very proud of these dams, um, and they think we've been providing clean energy and 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 electricity to the world. We we helped build aluminum to build the fighters that and bombers that helped win World War II with the energy from those dams. So to change the mindset of people like that is extremely difficult, and that's probably the most frustrating thing to me because you can point out the facts now that they lose money, they kill fish, why keep them? But that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to change their minds just because they have all the facts in front right. of them. Right, just because people so, are emotionally involved in it. That's, I would say, the most <clears throat> frustrating part for me is the cultural change that Michael just described. Uh, we're living in an era where cultural change societal change is happening much more slowly than ecological changes and those ecological changes are not necessarily for the better right. so that's really frustrating and disturbing to watch we know that we have to change people's minds but we're watching the, the ecology of our oceans and rivers change around us really rapidly how do you kind of bridge the gap between changing someone's mind and encouraging them to be active, to advocate, to vote, to be vocal. Because I have met a lot of people who feel badly for the Southern residents. They agree with all the points, but they lead busy lives. They feel their plate is full, so they're not affecting change. How do you think we can encourage people to be more interactive in the process of trying to do the right thing for the Southern residents? Well, I think on, in the islands right now, there's a fantastic example of what can happen when people recognize that there's a problem but don't take action. And I'm talking about the recent flap with Opalco. Um, Something happened with the utility here, which is the acronym is Opalco. I'm not going to remember what the letters are. <laughs> I can't remember right now. But um, basically, a, a, a lobbying outfit, uh, RECA, Washington Rural Electric Cooperative Association, uh, which is part of a larger national group that advocates for dirty energy, came in and convinced the board of Opalco to sign a resolution in support of the Lower Snake River dams. And two things became clear after this happened. One is that the information in that resolution that was passed by the Opalco board is 
demonstrably false. And two, and this is more important perhaps than the first, there is a democratic process by which any resolution like that is supposed to come to the board and be passed by the board, and that whole process was bypassed. So, um, by everybody that pays an electric bill in the islands, I think, has a the onus is on them to speak up and say, hey, why are you involving our rural electrical co-op in a political decision that was not uh, that your constituents were not given the opportunity to debate or vote or weigh in on in any way, shape, or form. You know, basically what happened is that Opalco got caught, and what's happened to our politics on a national level and even an international level is there are sort of nefarious characters like RECA who are coming in and circumventing democratic processes and so all of us sit around tables like this and say wow the, the world is really screwed up it's horrible but in fact what's happened with Opalco is just a little tiny microcosm of what's happening to our politics on a much larger scale if people don't take the time to move from just expressing sympathy to actually picking up the phone and calling someone, writing a letter, showing up at a rally, talking to their neighbors, this is the world we're stuck with. So kind of speaking to that, then people to point out the, the fallacies and consequences of complacency would be, Absolutely. Would be how to advocate for that. As far as motivating people, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, it does take a little bit of effort to write a letter. You got to figure out who do I need to write it to, or you got to, you know, it's not that hard to look up the right phone number, but it's, it's, I have to admit, I don't call my representative as often as I should. But what, how you can motivate people is kind of what I said at the end of our TED talk. It's very easy to simply talk to people. And if you just simply talk to people, that echo of your voice gets transmitted over and over and over again, and that can change public opinion. I mean, I'd, I'd love it if everybody got motivated and, and grabbed a sign in their plush orca suit and ran, went to a rally. <laughs> um, but that, you know, that's not necessary for everybody. And I, as cliche as it sounds, um, like yourself, you're a, a little younger than me. Um, the the younger generation, I think, is doing a really great job um, of being a little more active. The older generation has a tendency to get their heels stuck in. So um, it's it's encouraging to see people like you and both of our daughters very um, involved. And uh, so I was just going to answer your question as far as like motivating people. Um, you know, I think our film has done a great job with that. Um, we've shown it all over. We showed it in New York. We showed it in Eastern Washington and had a very spirited debate afterwards in Walla Walla. We've shown it in Spokane. We've shown it in, um, you know, uh, Sun Valley. And I think that kind of stuff, you know, getting the film out there, getting discussions out there, talking to people is very motivating to people and, and raises awareness to a point where people will actually start to raise to take some action. Okay, cool. Um, 
In terms of the people that you interviewed for this documentary, uh, was there anything particularly striking about them? Like with the the Palouse tribal elder, she, yeah, that that interview was so poignant to you that you included it in a more focal point uh, in the film. Um, was there any anything about all these people who were so passionate about the whales that really really struck a chord with you? Well, that, that interview with Carrie was so was difficult. I, Steve and I were tearing up behind the camera. I mean, it was such a hard interview to do, so that was, that was very inspirational. I, I just love Jeannie Hyde, her dedication <laughs> to these whales, and you know, to the point where she could mimic their sounds and, and talk to If she was underwater, she'd be able to talk to them. You know? So <laughs> that, to me, was very inspirational, to see people like... Dr. Deborah Giles and her commitment to these whales, to see Jeannie Hyde, to see London Fletcher, um, to see the amount of political things that Ken Balcom, who's, you know, at his stage in life and career, is still so incredibly motivated, um, and his brother Howie, and, um, you know, it's, it, and then there's, what was also kind of amazing to me was when Steve said, okay, we're going to go to the east side and we're going to start to interview some people that have been working on this issue for decades. Linwood Lahey and Tony Jones, those guys, they've been working on this for longer than you've been alive. So that was very amazing and, and inspirational to me to see how, how many people have been working on this issue for so long and how dedicated a lot of them are. Yeah. I was moved by... Ken's interviews when we were at uh, Moose Creek in yeah. Selway. You can't, you have to watch the movie closely, you know. Ken is kind of a laconic fellow, and but he was really emotional when we asked him about what had happened with J35 and her baby, and you can see that in the film. And I also, I like to think that Ken was uh inspired by seeing the side of the watershed where all these salmon once came from. You know, I think that was inspiring for all of us, but I think Ken, who has been really singularly focused on studying these whales, really will not leave the islands during the summertime when they're here. For us to convince him to hop on a plane and hey we'll pick you up in Pullman and then we'll get on another plane and fly into the <laughs> middle of the Idaho wilderness so you can see where these salmon used to be that seemed like a good idea but he did it and I that was a really inspiring part of the filmmaking process for me and, I, and I, we learned a lot about not only how dedicated Ken is but how tough he is yeah you know, he's... Uh, Steve didn't bring Ken a tent and made him sleep outside. <laughs> so, which was... Which he volunteered for, and then we got <laughs> to hear a lot of great stories about his training as a Navy officer, which did not make the film, but could perhaps be an entirely separate film. Yeah, there you point. go. Yeah. Yeah. That's very funny. Yeah, that, I, I did find that that was a really nice juxtaposition, you know, from from the rivers downstream, looking at those... Those, those headwaters upstream. That was really... I, I think it was moving to see, and I think that could inspire people to feel that the rivers need to come back to that state. If you look at the wilderness 
bill that was passed in the late 1960s by Idaho Senator Frank Church, that, that wilderness was created, and one of its express purposes was a sanctuary for salmon. Um, let's see. Are you optimistic that the salmon and orca will recover if the dams are breached, and why or why not? If the dams are breached? Yes. Absolutely. Um, and the, the, I know there's other factors. We've got challenging ocean conditions. Um, we've got some climate change issues that are happening, which makes it even more important Um the Fish Passage Center, we quote this in the film, did a conservative estimate that we'd probably have three to four times the amount of salmon returning immediately um, if we took out those four lower Snake River dams. So um, I am absolutely confident that if we took those out, we would have a lot more fish in the river and in turn feed a lot more orcas. I, there's just I, I no doubt in my mind. It's important for your listeners and people who follow this subject to realize that there is not a scientist outside of the corrupt federal agencies that are working on this issue for the BPA, the Corps of Engineers, and NOAA. There isn't a fisheries scientist outside of those agencies that believes that taking out the dams would have no positive effect on salmon returns. There's a letter that was circulated here about a month ago signed by 55 tribal and state fisheries biologists that said this is the last thing that we can do to save Columbia River salmon. So unfortunately what makes it in the newspapers all too often is a mouthpiece from one of the federal agencies saying We've studied this, and it's not going to do anything to save fish. <laughs> we know that those agencies are as corrupt as the day is long. And, you know, take a hard look at the science that's coming out of the Fish Passage Center, that's coming out of uh, some of the offices in Oregon and the state of Washington. They draw starkly different conclusions than what you'll see with the big agencies. Gotcha. Um, based on what you have seen and experienced, then what do you think it will take for these dams to get breached or removed? Um, yeah. I'm throwing that one to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, there's different factions of this movement, and behind the scenes, there's a lot of discussion and even disagreement about how to proceed. Um, there are larger NGOs that want to take this process on with, you know, move very slowly, walk it very slowly through a dauntingly uh, slow political process. And there's other groups, some of the orca advocacy groups out here on the islands recognize the ecological urgency of getting this done as soon as possible. It's hard to say which one of those paths will sort of bear any fruit, uh, so to speak, in dam removal. I don't think this can happen uh, politically. If we look at just sort of political reality, I don't think this can happen without some help from Congress. 
So you have bills like the one Idaho Congressman Mike Simpson was working on all of for most of 2019, which was basically Bonneville 2.0. To get Congress to move on this, we're going to have to provide some incentives for folks on the east side uh, so that it is desirable, it has a desirable outcome for them. Fine, let's do that. Um, I think there's some movement in the Pacific Northwest delegation to Congress. They recognize that there's an emergency here, not just biological, but uh, fiscal for the Bonneville mm-hmm. Power Administration. So the the sort of window of opportunity is opening up here and all the cards have to stay on the table. It's hard to say whether any one group is going to have the path forward to make this happen. It's sort of all the possibilities, if all the doors are open, we may be able to run through one as long as it stays open. You know, but that's where activism comes in if those doors are shut. Right. And then when, you know, the opportunity uh, crops up while the door's shut, we're not going to be able to take advantage. So, you know, activism, the type of activism you choose is, is very much a personal choice. And I used to joke when I gave talks that I don't give activist advice for the same reason I don't give dating advice. It <laughs> seldom works out, and I don't know you well <laughs> enough to say what you should or shouldn't be doing. But do something. Pick something that appeals to you and go do it. Something that works for you, for sure. I've seen certain dams come out. Like, I live on the White Salmon River, and right. I watched Condit Dam come out, came out. So what happened there was... Um, they were pressured to put in fish passage. They were required to put in, put in fish passage to get fish above the dam because it was such a high structure. It totally, they had no fish ladders. It was just totally corked. But when they were required to do that, um, the cost of putting in the fish ladders and putting in fish passage was more than the dam was creating electricity. So financially, they said, we're going to take it out. So that is one way that this can happen, is saying, okay, if financially it doesn't work out, that is ultimately what what is the biggest uh, mover. Yes. So it's it's kind of, I don't want to say that we're not going to save these, we're not going to remove these dams for orcas and salmon's sake, we're going to remove them for money's sake, Mm -hmm. but... In the end, that's, I think, the biggest thing that's going to move the needle. Yes. Um, We can also leverage some of the more outlandish statistics that the pro-dam crowd is using, you know, sort of hoist them on their own petard. One of the uh, lobbying groups just this week came out with a study that said it's going to t- it will cost $2.3 billion to the U.S. economy if we take out the dams. And my response was, well, these same federal agencies have claimed they've spent $16 billion over the past 40 years and they haven't saved a single species of salmon. At this point, $2.3 billion looks like a steal. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, let's the, do it. The, the hatcheries were put in because the dams were put in. Mm-hmm. The hatcheries were put in for fish mitigation. And these hatcheries, I mean, the, the budgets on them would, would weigh out 
weigh what it would cost to remove the dam. So, to me, I totally agree. I mean, why are the hatcheries there? It's because the dams were there. Yes. Well, we don't need to fund the hatcheries if we take out the dams, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I do. I absolutely. I my degree is in fish and wildlife ecology and management. And one of the things they they teach us in regards to dams and the permitting process is the point that it gets to where dams are too expensive to upkeep that's when they usually come out so i i tell my friends all the time the snake snake river dams are at some point going to come out it's just a matter of when absolutely but yeah i'd like to see it sooner than later i agree i would as well um let's see how successful do you think governor Inslee's orca recovery task force has been thus far <laughs> Mike, Mike's smiling a bit. <laughs> I, I think it's a great start. Okay. I commend him for doing something. Um, unfortunately, the way that it was structured and what it's doing is not moving very quickly in a direction that I think is going to help quick, um, very much. So... Um, Steve probably has even harsher well, criticism than that. <laughs> say that there's a crime wave in Chicago and the mayor creates a task force, right? Right. Who do you put on a crime task force? Policemen, uh, you know, community members who are concerned about the safety of their neighborhoods. That's a task force because you're trying to solve an urgent problem. What we had with the ORCA task force is sort of the equivalent of putting the criminals on the task force, right? <laughs> yes. You have all these people that benefit from the status quo who are weighing in saying, not what you can do, but what you can't do. You can't talk about taking out dams. You can't talk about sp spilling more water for fish. They were there. What was supposed to be a task force became a deliberative body. And so all of the best options that should have been on the table, there were people on the task force that were there to make sure that nothing got out of hand. And in fact, uh, one of the co-chairs of the task force gave a speech to a group in Pullman, and he said, my job was to make sure the discussion about dam removal didn't get out of control. So... Wow. Next time we have a task force, Governor Inslee, let's make sure that there are voices who are there to solve the problem and not act as a hindrance to problem solving. Very well said. Um, what else would you like to see in order to recover, recover the salmon and recover the southern residents in addition to dam removal? Um, well, they, they, the, the fish face a lot of challenges, right? And, and the orcas face a lot of challenges. Um, we are so efficient at catching fish now. Um, the gigantic factory fish out in the middle of the ocean are, are something that aren't talked about very often. But as these fish make their cycle around the area up around Alaska, um, a lot of them, most of them aren't even making it three cycles around before they're caught. That's why we're not seeing a lot of big fish return because they're getting caught 
Um, so I think our fishing practices need to be looked at very closely across the board. I'm talking every single person that puts a net in the water. Um, so that is a huge issue. Um, you know, we've got uh, uh, the acidification of the ocean and we've got the blob and the warming. And so there's a lot of other pollution issues, but um, it, it still goes back to me what is the biggest and most important thing we can do. When a whale is starving to death, mm -hmm. it starts to metabolize. And as you know, the, the blubber on these whales can be very toxic. And they start to, when they're hungry, they start to use that blubber that to, for basically nutrients. And those toxins go into their body much quicker and, and kill them. So the transient whales, the bigs whales, um, that are mammal eaters, which actually are arguably eating things with more toxins in them, are doing just fine. And the, the difference between those whales, they are in the exact same water. They're not even really transient anymore. They're, they're right. staying in the same water as the southern residents. They're thriving. And the only difference is they're eating something different. So what is the biggest thing we can do? What's the most important thing we can do? Well, this gets right back to some of the misinformation that's being spread on the, you know, Inslee's task force, which is now on the stage of this group that's supposedly taking a look at dam removal. You had one of the spokespersons uh, for, I, I don't, can't remember which trade group he was representing or if he was one of the co-chairs of this task force. He said that, well, what's killing the southern residents is these toxics in the Salish Sea. Well, what kind of toxin targets only salmon-eating orcas and leaves the rest of the food chain alone? Mm -hmm. That's a pretty interesting toxin. I'd love <laughs> to see a study on that. You know, and so again, we're just still battling the misinformation that, you know, we, we live in an age of fake news, but... I would suggest that one of the blueprints for fake news has been over the course of the last several decades, the information that comes out of the federal agencies managing the Columbia River system and their constituents in the barging and, and agricultural sectors of our economy. Gotcha. I actually, and I did, we did do an interview with Debbie Giles in October, I think. Mm -hmm. And she, we, we asked her a similar question, um, not maybe specifically towards the Orca Recovery Task Force, but in regards to what's being done in general. And, and she had the opinion that the fisheries got off pretty scot-free with, with the task force. So that was another one of those things that yeah. was taken off the table right away. Yeah. Because so. you had the criminals on the crime task force. Yep. <laughs> so that's that's definitely something to consider. Um, it sounds like you've talked quite a bit with dam proponents or people who are in dam proponent territory in the eastern side. Um, if you, and it sounds like you have said quite a bit, if you could say anything to a dam proponent if they were standing right here and they were just going to listen, just hear what you had to say, what would you say to them? Let's sit down for 50 minutes and watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. um, because um, I don't know how anybody with an open mind could sit down and watch our film 
and go through all these topics and not question uh, those dams. So, um, you know, it's all the things that we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. Okay, cool. That's a good last word. It's a good last right. word. Very cool. Um, so I already asked you what you found most frustrating while making this film. What did you find most encouraging? Uh, the most encouraging, you know, as a lifelong resident of the Columbia River watershed, my home waters, I find it most inspiring that as a society we had the foresight to set aside four and a half million acres of wilderness to protect salmon. You know, so since we had the foresight to do that, let's fulfill the promise that was made when the, you know, when those places were set aside. And so I look at that segment of the film where I told Michael this yesterday, for a decade I've wanted a map of where these fish go, because a lot of people say, oh, you take out the four lower Snake River dams and you have, what, 140 miles of Desert River in eastern Washington. Well, that's not the golden ticket. The golden ticket is that gives them access to all of the water in that four and a half million acres. And uh, that, to me, is... The, one of the primary inspirations for making the film is, you know, let's let's fulfill the promise that was made when those places were set aside. For me, it was, um, I like I said, I grew up in eastern Washington, and these dams are part of culture mm-hmm. there. I never in my life thought we'd even be discussing them. Steve said, hey, there's this chapter in my book. I don't want to turn it into a movie. And, you know, I'm like... <laughs> out of the fishing trip. All right. I, I, was, I was there at the first reading of his book, and we were floating down the Deschutes River, and, and, um, and he said, there's this chapter I'd like to bring to life in a film. And I said, oh, uh, let's do it. And I didn't have a lot of, um, you know, preconceived notions on how important or how... The, how the film would be received, um, I thought we'd be begging people to show it. The opposite has happened. We've shown it um, dozens of times all across the country, including Washington, D.C. We've done sold-out shows. Last night was a fantastic audience that stuck around to the end of the, of the, uh, of, of the Q&A period. Just last night, we got requested to be in two more film festivals. The Bellingham Human Rights Festival wants another copy so they can show it in two theaters. This has reached thousands of people already. Um, we just have, we just got educational distributorship, so we'll be able to have the film will be, can be rented in universities. And so that has been amazingly, um, it's been impactful on me in a positive way because I, I thought we'd be jumping up and down, going, "Hey, we got this problem. <laughs> let's let's take a look at it." But the opposite has happened. We've got a lot of people that want to see it and want to help, and that has been. It's really uh, given me a lot of optimism. Very cool. That's really that's it's really heartening to hear. Yeah. Um, so Erica and I always ask this uh, question in each of our interviews. Um, what do you think the whales have to teach us? I think one of the reasons people are so inspired by 
these whales is, as you mentioned earlier, they're so uncannily like us. And I would say even beyond that, they are not only like us, they live the way that we would like to emulate, you know, in close-knit family structures, sharing, taking care of each other, but also just their animation as, you know, biological characters. They're funny. (laughs) They are. They are. They're incredibly social. You know, we can communicate with them uh, quietly sitting in the room with us here this morning is uh, Heather, who made this beautiful film about nonverbal communication and how the way we know what the whales are feeling through nonverbal communication through their body language. You know that's inspiring to us. We we I, I'm thinking again of another book, uh, Carl Safina's book, Beyond Words: How Animals Think and Feel. You know, we know when we see the despair that these orcas are are sensing because they don't have enough food. We can we can empathize with that. Mm-hmm. And you know, art is one of its purposes is to create empathy. And I think uh, creation is also there for us to, as humans, to be able to empathize. And the whales are sort of these vessels of empathy for humans to, to think and feel beyond, you know, their own language. There you go. There you go. Um, very cool. Thank you. Do you guys have any final thoughts that you'd like to impart on our listeners at all? Anything you'd like to say or add? Just talk to people. Talk to people. Tell people about uh, what's going on. Um, just simply mention it and it doesn't have to be a big deal just over coffee say hey have you heard about these southern residents and the challenges and the dams and the, and uh, the salmon decline and and um, I think that can make a huge difference very cool and you do have a link on your website as well with the, the ways you can help if, if I do. remember correctly yeah. uh, com slash how you can help Cool. There's an amazing list there of a lot of organizations that are helping. Um, and pick one, and like Steve said, you know, uh, pick the one that fits you. Um, and because everybody has a different level of what they would like to do. You guys are awesome carrying signs at, <laughs> at Olympia. That's, that's pretty impressive. That's on that. We put that at the top of the, that, the you guys are A-listers. But, um, Thank you. Simply sending a text to your representative is also beneficial. Very cool. Well, thank you guys so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Um, And thank you, my listeners, for listening today. Thanks for having us. Bye. 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 Bye.